0: I'd like you to open in your Bibles. Now, actually, as I say, open in your Bibles, you don't necessarily have to open to every Bible reference that I'm going to turn to, but we will start in the Word of God at Genesis. In Genesis chapter 2, we're going to start reading from verse 5, read through to verse 9, and then skip to verse 15 to verse 17. So Genesis chapter 2, reading from verse 5, The theme of this shorter message is simply one word, death. Genesis 2, verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Amen. We stop our reading there. Simply to comment on, the, on that which we have just read, the picture is a picture of abundant life. All is good. The man, the, the man made in the image of God was surely the most stunning of God's creations. I tend to agree with C.S. Lewis. If we had have seen him before the fall, we might have been tempt, tempted to commit idolatry and actually worship him. Before his fall into sin, he was made in the image of God and he was called in the Gospel of Luke, the son of God. That man placed in a garden where every good tree was and amongst those good trees was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil along with the accompanying warning. You shall not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That phrase that's rendered in most of our English translations as you shall surely die is actually simply a repetition It reads literally, you shall die, die. You shall die, die. And the word die can actually be read as a a verb in an ongoing tense. And so it could be saying you shall dying, die. You shall dying, die. In the day that you eat of it, death begins its work in you. Now, if you would move on to Genesis chapter 3. were placed in a garden where life was abundant and were warned that just because life is abundant, do not think that this cannot be brought to an end. And they ate of the tree. The woman was deceived and the man rebelliously chose to join her. And so that that promise of God, in the day that you eat of it, you shall die, die. That promise of God commenced to work. The first evidence that it was working was they were aware of their unfitness to live in the presence of God. The man was now suddenly aware of his nakedness. He was aware of his, let's use a phrase, ungodness. Ungodness. He was aware of the fact that he was no longer the perfect image of God that he had been created to be. The second difference, the eating of the tree, the second worth, the second work that death did in the man and the woman was fear, fear. It appears from the narrative that when they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, it appears from the narrative that this was actually a fairly usual thing for the man and the woman before they fell into sin. They could expect to be visited by God at any time. And at any time, they would have happily come to the presence of God. But now they have eaten that which they were commanded to avoid. And so they seek to hide and they seek to cover themselves with fig leaves. And there we see another effect of this dying, dying, death, death, foolishness, stupidity. The brain fades. What else can you say? Think about it. You know that you've sinned. You know that God is God. You've met him personally. You've spoken to him personally and suddenly you decide upon sinning that God is so dumb that I can hide behind a tree and cover myself with a leaf. Foolishness, stupidity, dullness of mind. Death is at work. Death is already at work. God speaks to them. He does promise the gospels there in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. But he tells the man that life from now on will be hard and you will know pain. And so death continues to work in them. Cursed is the ground because of you in pain. You shall eat of it all the days of your life. Now, most of us, I'm sure most of us are kind of hoping and maybe we all know someone who's managed as a Christian to die peacefully in their sleep. You know, they laid down, they went to sleep and they didn't even know it, but they woke up in heaven. And that sounds nice. (laughs) If I I could choose the way that I go, I'd like that one, please. One day I'm going to lay my head on the pillow in comfort, go to sleep, and without even knowing it, I'm going to wake up in the presence of the Lord. That would be great. But sadly, we also know that for many, many people, probably you want, you could say the vast majority, and even for the vast majority of those who are in Christ, pain accompanies the separation of the soul and the body. Pain. Pain accompanies us to the grave, to the figuratively called to the Jordan River to the crossing into the promised land. Pain accompanies us. Death is at work in this world. And the man is told that you will return to the ground. You were taken out of the ground and to the dust you shall return. There's an implication there if you don't realise it. If he hadn't have sinned, he was not returning to the ground. I've said to you many times, there's almost no point in talking about what ifs when we talk about the scriptures. What if man hadn't sinned? What if? Well, the what if is if man had not sinned, he would have spent forever in the presence of God. He would not have returned to the ground. Remember, Jesus is called the second Adam. And where is Jesus now? Enthroned at the right hand of God, the father ruling over all creation. He went through the ground, but ended up in heaven where would man have ended up had he not fallen into sin well the what if is almost pointless because that was not according to god's will ultimately yet even so man fell to the ground he shall return and so we read in romans 5:12 therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin and so death spread to all men because all sinned Do you think for a moment that it's not fair that God chooses to set one representative at the head of the human race and when that representative falls, the same fate falls upon the whole human race? Do you think for a moment that's not fair? Well, my friends, just remember this. God also put another representative at the head of the human race many thousands of years after this. And his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. And because he did not fall into sin and because he was therefore raised from the dead, the blessings of that representative fall upon whoever is found in the family of that same representative. You might not think it's fair that the punishment of death falls upon all who are descended from Adam. But if you want to make that complaint, I tell you now, reject the blessings of faith that come through life in Jesus Christ because he is our representative. If we are in Christ, he is our representative. And the blessings that he has earned are now our blessings through grace. So remember that. All fell. 1 Corinthians 15, part thereof of the verse reads, for as in Adam, all die. For as in Adam, all die. And so what is the history of humanity from that time forward? We're born and sadly, even from birth, we're born into a world and into a life of decay. And all of our beautiful and blessed little children, You don't have to raise them for very long, but you realise that this thing called sin is at work in them. I remember the first time I ever heard one of my children swear. I am absolutely certain that he had never heard foul language from either his mother or myself in our household. And yet something came from his mouth that was just truly shocking. I remember the fact that all of my own children had a temper And it was evident from the earliest stages of life. You know, baby realises that when I cry, mum comes running. Whether there's something wrong or not, all you do is cry. And this servant woman comes rushing in. But then young mum gets a little bit experienced and starts to realise something. This baby's crying when there's nothing wrong with it. This baby just wants me to serve hand and foot. This baby wants my attention 24-7. I'm a grown-up. I'm not playing that game. You can have a little cry. Just go to sleep. <laughs> have, you, have you conducted that experiment, parents in the room? And um, have you noticed that the tone of the cry changes after a few minutes? You know, the normal wah, 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 come on, mum, run in and serve me, suddenly becomes, wah, I'm here, I'm important, why aren't you serving me? A demand for attention. You hear the anger in that tiny little voice. Why aren't you here? Why aren't you doing what I expect? You're not allowed to break the pattern. Believe it or not, I believe that's the manifesting of sin, even in a very young age. We care for our babies. We do what's best for them. But if a parent makes themselves a servant of their own children, well, I can guarantee you one thing in the long run. You're not going to be happy with what you get and they're not going to be happy either in the long run. God set authority into the world and he set parents over their children. And if you want to have a happy family, you live according to God's authority structure. So all are born in sin, all die. All the efforts of humanity, everything, consider it, consider it. We can write beautiful music. Artists can produce beautiful paintings. We can work incredible technology. We can sing. All the great works of humanity, for some, They're a celebration of the goodness of God. I admit that. For some, they're a celebration of the goodness of God. The simple truth of the matter is that most of the the greatest advances in human science and knowledge over the last 300 years have been started off by the groundwork of Christians. Don't ever forget it. People, for example, talk about the mathematical genius of Isaac Newton. You know he wrote about 10 times as much theology as he ever wrote science and mathematics? He was a believing man. And the same goes for the fields of medicine and the fields of space exploration and many other fields. Many Christians advance humanity in these ways, giving glory to God. Yet even so, there are others for whom this advancement of the knowledge and the ability of humanity is rebellion. It's rebellion. You see, the same knowledge that advances good for humanity can be used to build the Tower of Babel, can be used to build the Tower of Rebellion, can be used to build a false religion. And here's the thing, it all comes to death. In the end, it all comes to death. So very few people leave this world apart from death that we actually know who they are. Enoch walked with God and then he was no more. For example, and then we know about the prophet Elijah, whom God took to heaven in chariots of fire. So very few people leave this world apart from death that we know what the universal rule is, don't we? What's the universal rule? Death will take us all. And the only thing that can possibly intervene is the return of the Lord himself. Apart from that, death will take us all. It's the one certainty. They say that and taxes, but I'm not worrying about taxes this day. Death will take us all. But did God leave man without hope? We've already mentioned there was a promise. The promise was that the serpent's head would be crushed, that the power of death which the serpent would wield would be taken from him. God repeated that promise throughout Scripture. If you like, turn with me to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 24 and in verse 6, we read, first half of the verse, Therefore a curse devours the earth and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. The curse devours the earth and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. There it is. What's Isaiah speaking of? Death. That's the curse that devours the earth. That's that which brings on suffering for guilt. But Isaiah also speaks of God's promises. If we move on to Isaiah chapter 25 and start reading from verse 6. On this mountain, I stop for a moment. What does that mean? Isaiah spoke of the mountain, the mountain where God's people would gather and worship in the very presence of God. Remember, Garden of Eden, man sins, he runs and hides behind trees. When God reverses that work of sin, man runs to God. Man, come, man is drawn into the presence of God by God himself. And Isaiah speaks of that place of meeting as a mountain, the mountain of the Lord. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. Verse 8, he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. And so once again, we get the promise. There is God speaking of death. The curse lies upon all the earth. It devours all the earth. It's a covering that is cast over all the peoples. My friends, the covering of darkness, darkness. You know, death is not just a physical thing. It's a mental, spiritual thing. Ephesians chapter 2 starts with that phrase, you were dead. Physically, Paul was speaking to a people who were well and truly alive because they heard the gospel and they responded to his preaching. But he says of them, you were dead. Why? Because they were under the power of death. That spiritual, mental death that lies over all the nations, the darkness, the inability to see the truth and respond to it, the inability to be that which we should be. The Lord will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations, he will swallow up death forever. There's the promise. How? How? What's your picture of salvation, my friends? Is it the whiteboard picture? You know, the whiteboard. Great big whiteboard. Written upon the whiteboard is all that you've ever done. And then God says, That person's repented and gets the eraser. And the whiteboard's white again. Is that the picture? Is that how death was defeated? Well, it's kind of an apt picture for someone who is in the Lord, for our sins are surely forgiven and forgotten. But that's not how the Lord did that work, that's not how it was done. The first man brought upon humanity the penalty of death. All sin, all die. He sinned, he died. All of his offspring sin and die. How is God to overcome his own law? How is God to overcome his own law? How is God to lawfully overcome? overcome his own law. That's a bit harder. How is God to lawfully overcome his own law? What's his law? You sin, you die. The punishment for sin was death. It was from the very beginning. That's his law. You sin, you die. How does God lawfully overcome his own law? Well, if you've sinned, you've got to die. But remember, God built into creation that idea of the representative and the first representative sinned and died. Well, we're due a penalty, my friends. You, me, we're sinners. Sin draws down upon us the penalty of death. And though in Christ we have been made alive, yet all of us who are getting older you realise I'm not as fit and I'm not as strong and You know, my eyesight's not as good as it used to be, and things are fading. Weakness is coming. I feel it. I know it. Death to this body? It's on its way. What if, what if God's chosen representative chose to die on our behalf? Instead of dying for his own sin, for he was without sin, what if he chose to die? For those whom he represents. What if he chose to pay that price of death on behalf of others? And what if God were willing to accept that payment? God could then lawfully overcome his own law. He could lawfully overcome his own law. You see, God God is God. God. He is good. He is right. He is just. He is holy. And his law is no joking matter. It's not broken in any lightweight way. God himself does not break his own law. He does not break his own law. It stands. The commandment of God stands. The words of our God stand forever. That's what the scripture tells us. Luke chapter 12, verse 50, our Lord Jesus said, "I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished." I have a baptism. The word baptism," in its most literal sense, in its most literal sense, means to go under. If the ancient Greeks were describing a sinking ship, they would use that word "baptizio," it sunk, it went under. It's at the bottom of the ocean now. I have a baptism to be baptised with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Jesus, the son of God. Jesus, the son of Mary, the seed of the woman. Jesus, the one in whom there is no sin. The scripture keeps telling us no one could convict him of his sins. He asked the Pharisees and the priests one day, what sin do you accuse me of? Pilate put him on trial and said, I find no sin in this man. None, nothing, nothing. In him was no sin. He was tested like as we yet did not sin. And he says, I'm willing to go under. I'm willing to come under something. I'm willing to be immersed in something. I'm willing to be immersed in that which is lawful in God's sight. That is death. For sins. I am willing to die for sin, though he himself is guilty of no sin. I'm willing to die for sin, though he himself is innocent. I'm willing to undergo the full punishment of the law, though the law has no claim on him, as it were, because he has obeyed the law. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Turn if you want to with me to John chapter 19. Starting our reading from halfway through, or okay, we'll start at verse 16. So he, speaking of Pilate, so he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross that read Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour the disciple took her to his own home. And so death took the only good man that ever walked the earth. How does the world treat good men? It hates them and it kills them. How do we know? Because there was one good man. His name was Jesus, the son of God, the good man. And they killed him. Let's pray. Our father in heaven your people this day, having heard your holy scriptures, acknowledge that your commandments are just and right, that your justice is good, that it is fair that you have imposed the death penalty upon sin and that sinners die. We praise you for your glorious grace, for your majesty, for your wisdom, in that you gave your only begotten Son, that in that... Whosoever believes in him should not perish, but will have eternal life. Our Father, we thank you and we praise you concerning the works of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus, that he took upon himself death on our behalf. May we ever walk secure in this knowledge, praising you that you have been so good to us. This we say in Jesus' name. Amen.